You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ever since Russia began weaponizing its supply of natural gas, Europe worried about the prospect of an energy shortage. That hasn't happened. A warm autumn has kept prices low and let Europe fill its storage capacity. But winter is still coming. And this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology went to a Swedish researcher who pioneered the sequencing of DNA from humanity's forebears. His latest research doubles the number of Neanderthal genomes and suggests a thing or two about how they lived. But first... The G20 summit began this morning in Bali, Indonesia. For the next two days, leaders of the world's biggest economies, with the notable exception of Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, will be discussing some of the world's biggest problems. While the summit is usually meant to be a forum to discuss economic issues, high up on this year's agenda will be the war in Ukraine. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, addressed the summit remotely. Calling for a just end to the war, without compromises for Ukraine's sovereignty, territory, and independence. On Monday, delegates were drafting a communique condemning the invasion and the threat to use nuclear weapons. It's expected to be formally adopted on Wednesday. But that's not the only significant geopolitical issue that'll be addressed. The relationship between China and America is also taking center stage after a high-profile meeting between President Xi Jinping and Joe Biden yesterday. We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It's hoped the meeting will mark a new era in U.S.-China relations. But navigating that relationship is just one more issue that the rest of the G20 need to figure out. This G20 comes at a time of unprecedented geopolitical tension. It was born as an economic summit to bring together the biggest economies of the world, accounting for about 80% of GDP. But I think this time it's really about the geopolitics. Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. There's two aspects to that. One is the war in Ukraine, and the other is the tension between America and China, which is all-encompassing and affects everybody. Let's start with Ukraine. What do you think the tenor of the discussions will be? I think for the Western countries that are there, they will want to rally the world against Russia. They got a very large vote at the United Nations in October to denounce 
Russia's annexation of territory, so they want to keep up the pressure and the isolation of Russia. It's worth saying that Vladimir Putin is the ghost of the feast. He hasn't turned up. At the same time, I think most countries there, especially middle-income countries and developing countries, just wish the thing would go away. It's raising energy prices, it's raising food prices, it's causing instability and turbulence. So I think they will want to hear from the West whether, as well as the campaign of isolation, there's also a diplomatic track that might have a prospect of bringing the war to an end. Do you think there'll be any resolution, any progress on food and energy prices on those sorts of issues at the G20? It's hard to resolve for as long as the war goes on, but plainly the sort of minimum requirement will be that the grain deal keeps going. This is the agreement that allowed Ukraine to begin exporting its grain from its Black Sea ports. The Russians had agreed to it, then announced they were stopping it and then backtracked. So I think there will be pressure to keep it going. You've heard the UN Secretary General talk about the need for it to keep going. More broadly, I think that the question of energy prices will be important and whether the price cap that the West wants to impose on Russian oil will destabilize energy markets. The West is saying, no, this is great for everybody. Everybody will get to enjoy lower energy prices from Russia. I'm not sure... Gulf energy producers will be very happy about that. A lot of Asian countries have held off on taking sides in Russia's war against Ukraine. Do you think there will be pressure at the summit for them to come down on one side or the other? I think yes and no. I think that the West understands that most of the countries of the world don't really want to take sides. But I think they want support for the principles that the West is trying to defend, which is the integrity of the UN Charter, the inadmissibility of changing borders by force, and something that I think should be dear to a lot of countries, which is sovereignty, that big neighbors can't invade small ones just because they feel like it. So the geopolitical problem of more importance in Asia, I think, is is America's rivalry with China. Biden and Xi met yesterday. Obviously, the issue of Taiwan was important there and is hanging over the summit. What sorts of discussions do you think will take place around Taiwan? I think most of Asia doesn't want to be caught in the middle and having to choose sides. You know, I think the summit between Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping will have been welcomed, I think, by a lot of people. At least the two elephants in the room are talking to each other. I don't think we've seen many breakthroughs in the positions, and they have restated how important Taiwan is. Xi Jinping called it the red line that must not be crossed. But... I think that the more the Americans and the Chinese talk to each other, the less the chance of at least an inadvertent war. I think Joe Biden put it quite well when he said there doesn't need to be a cold war, and he doesn't think China's looking for a hot war in the sense of wanting to invade Taiwan imminently. Although there's a lot of nervousness in America that as China's military power grows, the temptation and desire to settle the matter by force once and for all will grow. Hosting the G20 usually lets the host nation grab some of the limelight. This year, as you pointed out, it's in Bali and Indonesia. What's on Indonesia's agenda? I think avoiding a bust-up would be probably counted as a success. Even the family picture is a problem because nobody wants to be photographed next to Sergei Lavrov, who's come in Vladimir Putin's stead. Getting a communique out is proving difficult because of Ukraine. 
But I think they will also want to keep all the other issues that concern the G20 on the road, the sustainable development goals. Another thing that Indonesia will be interested in is the potential for it to move off fossil fuels. We spoke to the president, Joko Widodo, who told us what his hopes are. In Indonesia, we have a potential to green energy. Kita memiliki 4.400 sungai yang itu bisa dipakai untuk hydropower. Kita memiliki. He spoke about Indonesia seeing a big potential in green energy and green technology. That he wants to build large renewables ecosystems, and that he's trying to convince Elon Musk to open a Tesla battery factory in his country. So, Anton, do you think we'll see any meaningful progress at the G20? Or is that unlikely? Is the summit just sort of a talking shop and we should expect leaders to pose for handshakes and then go about their business? I think the G20 has lost some of its luster. It was very important during the financial crisis in coordinating a global response to the financial crisis. But that was in the days when America and China were on much better terms. I think if this G20 has helped the two giant economies of the world and giant powers of the world find some more civil way of dealing with each other and reducing some of the tensions over Taiwan and restarting a dialogue over global issues, that is probably a good enough result for the G20. All right, Anton, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. You can watch our full interview with Indonesia's President Joko Widodo right now on The Economist website. And we'll have more from the president on next week's episode of Money Talks, available wherever you get your podcasts. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, But cyclones, storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. As countries the world over struggle with spiraling prices and food shortages, the fallout from the war in Ukraine is keeping G20 leaders occupied. But there's one crisis that has yet to materialize. As Vladimir Putin limited supplies of Russian gas, EU leaders were gripped by fear over fuel shortages this winter. Over the summer months, high prices sent international markets into a frenzy. You know, gas prices are volatile. They go up and down, but they have never seen gas prices like this during the summer. Now, uh, prices are peaking uh, almost as high as the historic peak during the worst winters uh, we have had in Europe. So this, uh, But in the last month, those concerns have evaporated. Prices are down, and European countries are enjoying a glut of gas. The continent has been spared. Not because of diplomacy, but because of the warm weather. And although the recent dip in prices won't offer full protection against an energy crunch, it does make an all-out disaster less likely. 
So the war in Ukraine really has changed the nature of energy security in Europe. After Russians' invasion of the country, prices escalated to eye-watering levels. James Francham is a data journalist at The Economist. And things really kicked off in August when Russia said it would cut off the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline. And that delivers natural gas from Russia across the Baltic Sea, Europe. And gas prices soared to over 10 times their historic average, to about 300 euros per megawatt. And so there's really been a mass scramble to secure gas suppliers from elsewhere in the event that Russia turns off the pipes. So, James, can you first tell us about that scramble? What have European countries done to shore up supply ahead of winter? The European Commission, after Russia invaded Ukraine, set a target for its member states to get their gas storage to at least 80% full by November the 1st. Lots of countries scramble to secure alternative supplies in the form of LNG, a liquefied natural gas from America, Qatar, and other countries. And it's really been a success story insofar as that target of 80% was surpassed weeks ago. And today, the EU's gas storage is over 95% full. So how have they managed to reach that goal so quickly? And how has the spending spree actually led to a fall in prices? They've been really fortunate. So Europe's been really fortunate insofar as that autumn has been extremely mild this year. Our crunching of the data suggests there's been a good few degrees warmer in September and October than the past 10 years. And mid-autumn is that time of year when people are normally sticking on their radiators, taking the chill off. And actually, evidence suggests that consumers aren't doing that or haven't done that up until a few weeks ago. All six of the continent's biggest economies have enjoyed their warmest October in at least a decade. So that means that the gas stores haven't been touched and demand has been so low that um, during trading a few weeks ago, the price briefly went negative. So that basically suggests that holders of LNG were willing to pay people to take the gas off them. The price went negative. How did that happen? Basically, shipping gas is really costly business, and it can only be stored in specialized facilities. And those facilities are actually distributed pretty unevenly across Europe. So about half of the LNG facilities are in Britain and Spain alone. And obviously, as storages were filling up, the LNG tankers basically had nowhere to unload. And they were kind of marooned, waiting for instructions off the Atlantic coast, off the coast of Britain and so on. And ships were charging about $400,000 a day at this time to basically hold the gas. We saw an example of that in the oil price back in the beginning of COVID. And so traders are willing to pay someone to take the gas off their hands. And that's what then forced the price down below zero. So that was a brief dip, but the prices are still pretty low. How long do you think these depressed prices will last? So gas prices really have fallen. They peaked at over 300 euros per megawatt hour. And today, they're around 35 euros for delivery today. But obviously, we know that the weather will get colder. And so these kind of depressed prices won't last for long. And in fact, if we look at the futures market, how much it would cost to have gas delivered in December, and then again, later on in the year, it's around 100 euros per megawatt hour. So yes, the expectation is that demand will rise and the price will increase. But indeed, 100 euros per megawatt hour still represents a decline in prices. It's far from the 230 euros that traders were paying uh, back in August for delivery in this coming February. You mentioned the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine. What about other pressures on European energy demand? 
There have been some other factors that have helped push prices down. One important element is China. China has a almost insatiable demand for LNG. But because of its uh, zero COVID policy, the wobbling economy there, it means that actually LNG demand has been quite a lot lower from mainland China than it might otherwise have been. But that might change next year if the economy bounces back. So looking ahead, there might well be more competition for those LNG shipments next year. And then the second one is the kind of alternative sources of power in Europe. So Germany has extended the lifespan of its nuclear plants, but that will only last until around spring next year. Um, So there are two big elements that are likely to change the course of prices next year. But this year, the worst case scenario seems to have been avoided in Europe. What's next? That's right. The worst case scenario has been avoided, it seems. Obviously, there's still requests for people to change their behavior to ration, in a sense, their use of energy. But the immediate panic is over. Having said that, we knew that this winter was only just the beginning. That's because Nord Stream 1, there doesn't seem to be much prospect of it flowing again next year. So therefore, next summer, all those gas stores will have to be resupplied from LNG and the few pipelines which are supplying Europe. So next winter will really be the very difficult winter to get through. All right, James, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. The early story of Homo sapiens also includes a number of different species in the genus Homo, some of them around at the same time. They had more than passing interactions. A few percent of the DNA found today in some Pacific Islanders might have origins in the Denisova people, and a percent or two of Neanderthal DNA lingers in the genomes of lots more people of non-African descent. Figuring out that much about the mixing of past hominins was already enough to earn Swedish scientist Svante Pabo a Nobel Prize this year. But he has stayed busy, and the kind of work he and colleagues are doing now can at least start to make guesses about Neanderthal society. Researchers have discovered quite a number of new Neanderthal genomes, pretty much doubling the number of genomes that have been known so far. Abby Bertix writes about science for The Economist. They have analyzed them, giving us some really interesting clues about what Neanderthal's social and family life might have looked like 50,000 years ago. So tell me more about this. Where did this doubling of genomes come from? The genetic information was sequenced from bones and teeth found in two caves in the Altai Mountains of Russia. One of them is called Chigirskaya, and the other is called Akladnikov. They're about 100 kilometers apart in Siberia. These bone and tooth samples were from 13 different individuals. There were 11 from Chigirskaya, three boys, three girls, three men, and two women. And there were two from Akladnikov, a boy and a woman. Taken together, this work gives us a glimpse into what the Neanderthal world would have looked like. In what sense? I mean, are all of these individuals related? Not all of them were related, but there were some relations. A father and a daughter. There was a young boy and a close maternal relative, maybe a grandmother or an aunt. Those two pairs were at the Chigirskaya site. 
So those are the hypothesized relations between the 11 people in the first cave. Is there any connection then to the two people in the other cave? The two individuals from Akladnikov cave were not closely related to anybody from Chigirskaya. But we know that there is contact between these different communities, between these different groups. And you can use this comparison to try to figure out whether it is the women that are causing the contact, that are moving around, that are causing the genetic diversity, or whether it is the men that are moving around and causing that. But how does that comparison work? How do you use fragments of DNA to reveal how Neanderthals moved around? So what the researchers did was they looked at a type of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down intact from mother to offspring. This DNA, because it's not involved in sexual mixing, doesn't change as often, only when it randomly mutates. So it is constant for a lot longer. And what they found is that the mitochondrial DNA of the woman from Akladnikov cave matched that of a man from Chigirska. So that means that they probably shared a recent common ancestor. There is a part of the genomic DNA, the Y chromosome, that also gets passed down relatively intact, but this time from father to son. And you can compare the diversity of this mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome DNA to try to figure out how the society is moving around. And so how was it moving around? Neanderthals didn't live in completely isolated communities. And the researchers, by looking at the genetic diversity of the Y chromosome, which is passed down from father to son, and also by looking at the mitochondrial DNA diversity, which is passed down from the mother, they are able to figure out who's moving between these communities, who is causing this genetic diversity. And they found that the mitochondrial genetic diversity was much higher than the Y chromosome genetic diversity, which means that these communities were probably linked by female migration. So what does that tell you then about how Neanderthals lived? It suggests many possibilities. This isn't a whole lot of super concrete data, and we can't just ask them. So the model that best fit the data that we have of these 13 individuals was that they lived in groups of about 20 individuals, which is slightly smaller than what we think Homo sapiens of that era lived in, which was around 25 members. And they also believe that from these groups of 20 members, about 60% of the females in the group would have migrated there from somewhere else. And we know that females tended to move around in our own prehistory. So as you say, there's not a lot of data to work with, not a lot of tooth and bone to work with here. And it's a little bit guesswork, but is, is the upshot here that Neanderthals and, and Homo sapiens that were around at the same time lived in similar ways? It could. It's probable, but it's also really hard to know for sure. The fact that we have 13 individuals in one study has really increased the amount of Neanderthal genomes that we have available, and it really allows us to make new and more scientifically and empirically backed speculations as to how Neanderthals might have lived in the past. Thanks very much for joining us, Abby. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.